Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey there, welcome to The Tint. I'm your host, Scott Thelman, and it's time for another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. With the uptick in interest in brackish water aquariums, we're starting to see some interesting experience. Uh, We've had some great discussions, and of course, we receive a fair number of questions about the whole idea of botanical-style brackish water aquariums. And curiously, one of the top questions we receive is how we arrived at the name estuary for a line, which is really funny. Well, let me explain. An estuary is the areas of water and shoreline where a freshwater stream or river merges with the ocean. Estuaries can be partially enclosed bodies of water, such as bays or lagoons, where two different bodies of water meet and mix, hence the whole brackish thing. Now, salinity varies in these habitats, often depending upon tidal influences. And these regions are very ecologically productive because of the nutrients brought in by the rivers. Many of the fishes and invertebrates that inhabit these brackish water communities migrated from the ocean or from freshwater habitats. Although aquarists have been playing with brackish water aquariums for decades, in my opinion, what's been missing is a focus on the actual habitat and how it functions. Just like how the hobby was doing you know, with black water for years, I think that we've been collectively focusing on the wrong part of the equation for a long time. In this instant, just salt and basic aesthetics. And as we've done for tannin, what we're trying to do is focus a lot of energy on the functional and the different aesthetic aspects of the brackish water environment, different than what has ever been done before. Now, our approach to brackish water uh, is a little different than, you know, throwing a couple of rocks and white sand, a few teaspoons of salt per gallon, some monos and mollies, and you're good to go. It's that concept that's been around forever and ever, and we're trying to change that. It's not quite as sterile and pristine as the world we played with before in this sector of the hobby. To be quite honest, I don't think that the current version of blackwater aquariums uh, or excuse me, brackish water aquariums. See, I'm solely caught up in black blackwater. But the, the current version of brackish water aquariums is, a, is probably a good part of why they've remained relatively obscure for so long. They're, well, kind of monochromatic, shockingly unrealistic, and dare I say, boring. Sure, there's always exceptions, but the majority of brackwater, uh, brackish water tanks that I've seen set up in this manner have, in my opinion, left a little to be desired. Um, and generate more than just a you know an occasional acknowledgement from the aquarium world at large. I think we can and we will do better. Our focus has been on trying to replicate and understand that complex web of life that occurs in brackish water habitats, and we'll evolve the practice and appreciation of this unique niche just as we've done, you know, with black water and botanical aquariums in general. In fact, the approach that we take to brackish is unlike what has previously been taken before, but one that's incredibly familiar to you as, you know, tinted botanical-style aquarium enthusiast. And of course, there are a few components which, in our opinion, power brackish water botanical-style systems, mud, leaf litter, and mangroves. Uh, without going into tons of details, we know that mangroves are woody plants that grow at the interface between land and water in these tropical and subtropical regions that we are so interested in. Mangroves are what botanists call halophytes, plants that thrive under salty conditions, and they love high-nutrient substrates. 
In many brackish water estuaries in the tropics, rivers deposit silt and mud, which generates nutrients, algae, and fosters the developments of other small organisms that form the base of a food chain. Now, this food chain is very familiar to what we've been talking about in our botanical style, you know, blackwater aquariums for a couple of years now, at least. The nutrients in the mangroves that the mangroves seek to grow lie near the surface of the mud deposited by the tides. Since there's essentially no oxygen available in the mud, there's no point in the mangroves sending down really deep roots. Instead, they send out what are called aerial roots, which gives them their cool appearance, by the way, sort of hanging on in the mud and also gives the mangroves the appearance of sort of walking on water. It's kind of cool. They're very unique trees. And of course, the leaves which the mangroves regularly drop form not only an interesting aesthetic and a structural component of the habitat and therefore the aquarium, they contribute to the overall biological diversity and the richness of the habitat. Fungi and bacteria in brackish and saltwater mangrove ecosystems help facilitate the decomposition of mangrove material, just like their pure freshwater counterparts. Interestingly, in scientific surveys, it's been determined that the bacterial counts are generally higher on attached mangrove leaves than they are in freshly fallen leaf litter. This is kind of interesting to me because ecologists feel that the attached undamaged mangrove leaves don't release much tannin, which, as we know, might have some antibacterial properties. However, it's also been found that materials like humic acid, which are abundant in the mangroves, stimulate phytoplankton growth there. Interesting, right? Kind of an interesting chemical soup. Now, the leaves of mangroves, as they break down, become subject to both the leaching of compounds in their tissues as well as microbial breakdown. Compounds like potassium and carbohydrates are commonly leached quickly, followed by tannins. Fungi are the metaphorical first responders to leaf drop in mangrove communities, followed by bacteria, which serve to break down the leaves further. So yeah, we love the idea of creating your brackish water ecosystem around leaves and mangroves, either alive or just utilizing the roots and branches to simulate the appearance of the mangrove root system. I'm really excited about seeing how we develop our brackish water systems vis-a-vis the function of the microcosms we foster. I think that the lessons we've learned from our blackwater and just general botanical style work are going to translate very well into this, you know, salty kind of realm And I think we're going to see a lot more experiments. And I I would suppose that, you know, there's going to be some unique developments down the line. And I think what's kind of interesting is that these types of systems run just like blackwater botanical style aquariums that we're used to, with the exception that they're more nutrient rich than the blackwater tanks. The dynamics of decomposition and the ephemeral nature of leaves and and all that mangrove material in the water are analogous in many respects. And again, the, the fungi and bacteria... Uh, in the brackish water ecosystem help facilitate that decomposition. So we definitely want to get those populations up. We're not fighting those. Now, a lot of people say, what's the what's the challenge with a brackish tank? Well, there's a few things. Obviously, you want to keep the specific gravity or salinity consistent. And a lot of it has to go with, to do with whether you're playing with mangroves or just simulating the environment. If you're growing mangroves, the key with the mangroves, you want to sprout them when you get the tropical, which is that pickle-like uh, or, or zu- little thin zucchini-looking thing. Um, you want to sprout it in the same type of water that you're going to grow up. We're going to talk a lot more about mangroves, but um, just in general, specific gravity or the amount of salt in the water is very important. Now, really, you want to keep this specific gravity. For, for brackish, it's arguably anywhere between 1.005 to 1.010. Um, I've oftentimes targeted 1.010, 1.008 as my specific gravity. And it worked really well. It's kind of the sweet spot for most of the fishes that I've kept in brackish aquariums. Uh, rainbow fish, gobies, mollies, etc. They seem to do quite well at that, you know, that specific gravity. 
And I've made no secret that at some future point, I'm going to push things all the way to like 1.021 and just go to full marine. It's kind of show you guys a different side of tin and it's perhaps a tinted marine aquarium, some things like that. We know some people have played with that and it's pretty interesting stuff. Now, look, we were talking about mangroves, the, the, the trees, and I have no illusions about using live mangrove, you know, mangrove plants specifically to serve as nutrient export mechanisms like they do in nature. You've seen this touted in the hobby over the years, and it's really kind of silly if you ask me. They just go too damn slow, and they achieve these sizes that are far beyond anything we could ever hope to accommodate in our home aquarium displays as full-grown plants. We've played with this idea in saltwater tanks for decades, and it's really more of a novelty than a legit nutrient export mechanism. Just enjoy them for what they are. Now, they will reach a couple of feet in an aquarium in a couple of years, so they may need to be pruned periodically to sort of keep them a manageable size, similar to a bonsai tree, if you will. And of course, no brackish water aquarium is complete without brackish water fishes. And traditionally, that has been a bit of a challenge in terms of finding some different fishes than we previously associated with brackish aquariums. I think that this will continue to be a bit of a challenge for a while because some of the fishes that we want are still elusive in the hobby. New brackish water fishes will become more readily available when the market demand is there. In the meantime, we can focus on some of the cool fishes from these habitats which are currently available to us. And there are quite a few. Now, one of the things I've found that is that you need to go beyond the, what the Harvey articles say and look into the actual information from scientific resources about the types of habitats that our target fishes actually come from. There's still a surprisingly large amount of misinformation out there concerning fishes thought to be brackish when the reality is that they're often from predominantly, predominantly, why do I always have a problem with that word, don't I? predominantly non-brackish habitats with perhaps only isolated populations of fishes being brackish. So there's still a lot to learn. There's a lot to dismiss as incorrect, unnecessary, and a lot of techniques still to develop. And isn't that kind of fun? I'm going to tease you a little bit because we're going to talk a lot more about brackish this summer and uh, we'll have some real exciting developments in our estuary line of brackish water materials. A lot of new things coming into the uh, into play and then over the next few months and should be an exciting year for brackish water aquariums. So in the meantime, stay intrigued, stay creative, stay engaged, stay salty, and always stay wet. This is Scott Feldman. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tent.